0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: One of the central threads in the public discourse on black womanhood is the idea of the Jezebel. This trope deems black women and girls as dishonorable and sexually deviant, and a stereotype is circulated from the big screen to the pulpit. Tamora Lomax outlines a historical genealogy of the discursive Jezebel and reveals its contemporary legacy in Jezebel Unhinged. Loosen the Black Female Body in Religion and Culture, published with Duke University Press in 2018. Lomax brings together theoretical strands from medieval thinkers, biblical narratives, enlightenment theories of race, and American cultural productions to demonstrate how gender hierarchy and patriarchy have been constructed in black communities. These systems can be reinforced through the relationship between hip hop culture and the black church or be challenged by womenist interpreters. In our conversation, we discuss Girlhood in the Black Church, Racial Theories, The Biblical Jezebel, Womenist Criticism, Formations of Respectability, Female Sexuality and Femininity, Bishop T. D. Jakes, and the work of Tyler Perry. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion, a channel on the New Books Network. Now, my conversation with Tamora Lomax about Jezebel Unhinged. Welcome, Tamora. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Religion. How are you?
0: I'm doing good. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about Jezebel Unhinged. Uh, but before we get into the book, we always start with a little bit about our authors. So um, can you can you tell us a little bit about your background? training, influences, uh, things that brought you to the study of religion?
0: Yeah, wow. Um, So I am a Black feminist uh, theoretician and religionist. I'm also a historian of Black religion and culture. And um, I was born and raised in a Black church. I um, grew up in a household where, literally, when I was born, my parents brought me home from the hospital to our a trailer, which was on a seminary campus. That's back in the day when seminary campuses um, had trailer housing, and um, my dad was a seminary student, and so he was a student and also a pastor at ITC, and so I was kind of born into the faith. Um, in a very interesting way, he went on to get his PhD from Syracuse University and become a theologian. Um, and, and I think this is an important fact, a theologian at, um, the black, first black theologian at a Southern Baptist seminary, which Southern Baptists have, um, very difficult histories in slavery, um, sexism, Homophobia, racism, and what have you, and a lot of that is coming to the fore now. And that, so it shapes me. This experience shapes me in very interesting ways because, on in one, in one, part, one, on one hand, um, it shapes me in terms of um, being being a participant in the Black Church and having this appreciation. But on the other hand, it shapes me in terms of Um, recognizing, but not necessarily having the language. Uh, Very early on, the issues around sexism, homophobia, racism, um, I began seeing that pretty early. And so I have this kind of interesting relationship with it. So there's an appreciation, but uh, there's also this very critical gaze. Both of those shape me into being the scholar um, that I am. And so it kind of thrust me into seminary and having this longing for something more, wanting something more, but also having this very uh, critical edge. It's also probably why I'm a theologian and uh, not a theologian, but a theoretician and not a theologian. We can talk about that later, but that's, it's related. Um, my, my critical gaze is related to why I've taken one path over another.
1: Yeah. Um. Now, and, in- this project, from what I can tell reading through the book, um, it sounds like there's moments in your life that were kind of, uh, you know, small little sparks that perhaps uh, started started something brewing. Um, but how, to, how did this uh, project start to emerge as kind of a book project? Uh, where does it fit in with kind of your your broader research? Because um, you've done work related to these things. uh both in more public venues and Mm -hmm. other scholarly publications. So where does this book fit into uh, kind of your overall objectives?
0: Um, Well, first of all, I want to say kind of what sparked uh, the book. So part of it is cultural, kind of a cultural experience, and then the other is what happens to me in seminary. And so um, when I was younger, and I write about this in the Prolegomena, um, there was this experience Um, In the Black church, uh, me being a little girl, being 11 years old and being sexualized by a prominent member of the church. And it was my parents, uh, their handling of that, that uh, troubled me for decades later. But it wasn't just them. What I understood is that they were Black parents in America doing the best that they could with the tools that they had. And I think as I got older, I realized, oh, they didn't have the best tools. Maybe I could create tools within Jezebel. Jezebel is this kind of, it's its a variety of things, but it's also this kind of set of tools and this this critical gaze that I need parents to have, that I wish that my parents had, that I wish that other uh, Christian and non-Christian parents, that Black parents had in terms of understanding the ways that sexism and racism work, particularly on Black girls' Bodies. And so um, it was that experience of the uh, person in church and uh, sexualizing me. Um, He told my dad, who was a pastor, that he couldn't focus during prayer because he was focused on my butt, my 11 year old butt at that. And I just felt, you know, like my parents should have chastised him, right? They should have problematized him. But instead, they problematized me and said, well, don't wear that dress anymore. Don't stand here anymore. Don't, which is what parents kind of do. They give, in order to protect their children and particularly their black girl children, they, you know, give this list of rules for us. And I, and you know, as I got older, I realized, no, he needed the set of rules, not me. I was just existing. So that was the first kind of experience where I was like, wait, what's, what's happening here. Um, simultaneously though, I'm a child of culture. I'm a child of hip hop. I watch the news. So I I walk down the street. So I'm also being sexualized as a young black girl in a variety of um, contexts, not just the black church, but I think it's a black church that troubles me so much because I'm like, wait, this is supposed to be safe space. Well, it is, but sometimes it's not, but it's, I shouldn't feel the way that I feel when I walk to the corner store. I shouldn't feel that way in church, right? I shouldn't feel like I'm being catcalled or I'm being Sexualize in a, in a very a problemata- problematic way. I should not feel these things in church. I shouldn't feel them at all, but here I am, I'm feeling them. And so, and then I feel them in music, in music that I love. So I'm dealing with all of these complexities and I kind of carry them with me um, into these different environments. And so I'm building basically like this bag of questions, like, why is this happening? And it's not just happening to me. It happens to all my girlfriends. When we walk down the street, this is what happens to me and my homegirls. This is how we're catcalled. We're, we're all being sexualized in and, and these different contexts, what's happening. Um, I think the culminating moment was in college, though. Uh, I went to an HBCU, Clark Atlanta University, and my friends and I, it was a group of uh, eight of us, we're still friends to this day. They're all bridesmaids in my wedding. Like We're really good friends from freshman year. We would always travel um, together to um, anywhere. But one particular place we loved to go was Lennox Mall in Atlanta. And we'd have to go downtown and take the bus and then a train and all that. And every time that we went downtown for four years, there was a street preacher who would stand on the corner with a poster, a Bible, and some other stuff. And she would call us Jezebel Sluts, one of one of the chapters named named after that. She would call us Jezebel sluts every time, you know, Jezebel sluts. And I remember telling the story um, right after it happened. And the person I told it to, they said, Well, what were you wearing? Right? Well, that's kind of the rapey question that you ask girls to, you know, kind of say it's your fault that you're being sexualized. And we're like, And I was like, Well, this was the moment where TLC, you know, the singing group, um, this was like their hot moment. If you think about how they dress, that's how we dress. So, like, very baggy you know, masculine identified clothing. That's how we dressed. So it shouldn't matter what we were wearing, but just in case one wants to know, that's what we were wearing. And so ultimately it does not matter. But for four years, this woman called us Jezebel sluts. And so I took the baggage I already had and I put that into the baggage, right? And I carried that into my adulthood with these questions like, why are black women mm-hmm being sexualized in this way in all of these different spaces, but particularly in religious spaces. And this was a black woman. This was an older black woman. Um, Why is she calling us this? We're black women. We're black young black girls. But then she has this Bible. Like, What is the connection to religion? What is the connection to religion with this kind of social, cultural, political engagement on black women and girls' bodies that's happening, what's happening there? And so... It was seminary that started my intellectual journey. Uh, I can't say that I went to seminary to work on this. I went to seminary because I felt called, but it was in my second year, I believe I was in a class called Sexuality in the Black Church, um, named after Kelly Brown Douglas's book. And that was um, my first experience in talking about race, sex, gender, and religion, and specifically the Black church. And that really gave me the platform to just kind of burn it all down. <laughs> it gave me the language. It gave me the permission. Um, even though I don't, you know, I'm not a womanist theologian, it still gave me the platform to begin this this uh, very uh, critical work, this journey, this intellectual journey. Um, it was Kelly Brown Douglas's work that, that did that and kind of set me on my way. And it, it started off um, the, the, the journey that I'm still on today.
1: <clears throat> That's great. Now, um, the, the you focus on the, this discourse on Black womanhood, and um, you've already kind of pointed that this key, uh, a key aspect to that is this idea of uh, the Jezebel. Um, and uh, in its kind of discursive use, it establishes this dichotomy about black womanhood and girlhood. Mm -hmm. Um, so can you, can you lay this out for, for listeners? What, what does, uh, the Jezebel represent in your work? How would you say, uh, uh, the process of unhinging, uh, what does this look like? Um, and, and perhaps what's the kind of broader conceptual interventions you, you're trying to make in this book because you're kind of crossing multiple uh I don't know if we want to say disciplines, but at least uh kind of theoretical approaches. So sure,
0: sure. Um so I begin with these questions, right? So why is it that black women are being sexualized in this way? Why only black women in particular? Why are our bodies being interpreted in this way? Where did this discourse come from? That's being attached to our bodies. Um, Why would a black woman, black women in general, why do we participate in such a discourse? And then, what does the Christian faith have to do with um, this kind of representational violence? What's 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 happening here? What texts are we reading that is informing such a discourse? So I want to begin there because. Those are the questions, like, how did this line of thought come to be? And why is the Black church and Black people, why are we all participating in something that is clearly very racist and sexist, right? So why why is that? What What's underneath this? And what I realized is that on a very basic level, uh, and this is what I argue in the book, is that America has a grammar book. It has a grammar book on race and gender that we collectively draw from. And so, this grammar book on race and gender calls black women and girls promiscuous, temptresses, fast, loose, uh, whores, what have you. And so, and regardless of them being raped, regardless of regardless of them being victims, regardless of you know them not even being free in certain certain circumstances. If we go back to slavery, right? But there is this discourse that's happening that is impacting Black women in particular. And so if you think about a grammar book, right, the Black and white grammar books of old, they were uh, used to practice the system and rules of language. Uh, if you think about it, they probably don't use them now. But back in my day, we used those Black and white uh, grammar books to, 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 practice, to practice the system and rules and structure of language. Well, similarly, America's grammar book on race and gender constructed basically a whole system of thought and language. Uh, including the linguistic, representational, and otherwise on Black womanhood, right? And so this language, aka discourse, basically creates worlds and realities that we then are forced to be born into and inhabit and negotiate. And so what I argue in the text is that the grammar book on Black womanhood not only shaped how Black women and girls are seen and how our sexuality and femininities are read, but it, but it is also a mass-mediated, cross-pollinated, circulated, and taken for granted, quote-unquote, truth. So these things are believed. And so they impact us in our lives. And not just in terms of catcalling, but in terms of when Black girl, women and girls are raped, right? We, we don't see them as being victims because, no, they're promiscuous. When Black women and girls are murdered, we don't see them as being vic- victims because, well, no, they probably were asking for it. Um, When the police, uh, there was a couple years ago, I remember there was a situation where uh, police, there was police violence and it uh, was at a birthday party or something. And there was a little girl who had on a bikini and the police, you see the police, not only physically violating her, but sexually assaulting her. And no one takes, no one looks at that part. It's just, oh, that's, this is how they treat black people. And, And black women are like, wait a minute. No, this is also sexual assault, but we couldn't even see that. We couldn't even see how the positioning of her body, the intentionality of that was also, um, you know, sexual violence. We couldn't see that. So basically there's this narrative that is so mass mediated and cross pollinated around black women's being this so-called inherently um, promiscuous that we don't get to see them, their complexity or as humans. And so Jezebel, uh, basically, which is one part historical contextualization uh, and analysis, and then it is one part uh, contemporary cultural analysis. Basically, it argues this it argues that America's discourse on Black women and girls is not only bankrupt, but it is corrupt, right? And such a discourse, it has its pivots as its pivotal ideology, a simul discourse in, in, on a discourse on Jezebel but also on this notion of black women being whores, holes, thoughts, sluts, sluts, uh, hypersex, promiscuous, loose, fast tailed, uh, and on and on and on. There are many ways of of, of, of sexualizing black women and girls. And so the underlying kind of idea of the books is, you know, we'd always have that saying sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And what Jezebel argues is that that's a lie. These names have hurt us. Um, they have caused harm and not just our feelings. People have died. Um, people have been raped. Uh, slave women were forced to breed because they were seen as inherently uh, promiscuous because of this narrative. And so I should say it's very important um, to understand that for one, unhinging and or loosing, those are terms within the book that are um, kind of used interchangeably. But, um, on one hand, unhinging serves as a critique of not only culture but those critical discourses deploying uh, this, this sort of language. But on the other other hand, it means to point us forward. Like basically, we need to be free from these uh, ideas. We need to be free from the ideas that basically merge the Jezebel figure in the Bible, which I argue is a misreading of her. Um, the cultural reading is a misreading of her. Well, that idea is merged with. Um black slave women slave women who were also called jezebels. they were called uh, black women, slave women who were forced to breed were called jezebels. and that was a way for uh, the master class to rape them without recourse, right? We're not raping them, they're forcing us. they're sex they they are hypersexual. they have these powers. So the same narrative worked um, as a way to cleanse uh, their white masters from the violence that they were doing to them. And so we, Black women in today's contemporary context, we continue to live under um, under this kind of umbrella of meaning. I, sh- I should also say one one other point, though, is that the thing that I argue is that, so we have Jezebel in the Bible, and then we have um, slave plantations, these Black women being called uh, Jezebels to as a way to deny that they were raped. But the Jezebelian figure existed long before that trope. Existed long before we even get to North American slavery, and that's the Black Venus figure. And so, what the book argues is that yes, we have this text, we have the Bible, but we have this narrative that, quite frankly, poss- possibly exists before even uh, the Bible. Well, from what I could see, it, it goes back to, from it probably goes back before this, but I go back at least as far as. Um, the Middle Ages, and I look at um, texts that also sexualized um, Black women, harmfully sexualized Black women, um, and kind of the travel logs and other medical, med- medical, medical uh, diaries and so forth, and the language that was used in the poetry, the language that was used there um, was very similar to what we to what we're seeing now in terms of the sexualization of the Black female body.
1: Yeah, and uh, I, I think that was a really effective uh, structuring of the book, both this kind of historical component that uh, kind of provides this uh, longer genealogy um, mm-hmm. combined with this kind of contemporary cultural criticism. Uh, I, I, it's really effective, I think, as, uh, uh, for, for, for readers. Um, and so uh, the, the first chapter you go into kind of greater detail, um, which you you've kind of already mentioned a little bit here, Um, but, uh, you move on to, um, the biblical Jezebel within the black church itself. Yeah. Um, so what, what are some of the ways that the Jezebel narrative had been used in, in black church spaces and what are the discursive effects of its usage?
0: Oh yeah, that's a great question. So I know, I remember when I was growing up and my mother, and this is part of why they responded to the member in church uh, the way that they did, who said he couldn't focus during prayer, uh, her and my dad. Um, One of their greatest fears, and this was a lot of Black parents, um, was that their daughters would be seen as Jezebels. That's one of the greatest fears. And I write about this in my latest work now. That we have sex before marriage, that we um, have children before marriage, and that we be seen as Jezebels. Those are all related. And that's, excuse me, historically rooted. It's historically rooted in the stereotype, right? So after slavery, you get the policy of respectability from the middle class, black middle class, and black folks saying that, you know, look, we're normal. We're, please don't you know, look at us the way that you looked at slave women, because they really didn't have a critique of the breeding that was happening. They didn't have a language for it. And so instead of saying, let's not look at the slave women who were forced to breed and men who were forced to breed, let's look at the structure that forced them to breed, right? Instead of doing that, they looked at the slave women and men and said, we're not like them. We are respectable. We have sexual politics and they are not that. And what Jezebel argues is that, no, it wasn't the people, the the victims and survivors, the, the, it wasn't their sexual politics that were a problem. It was the sexual politics of, of, of white racism and the master class and of slavery. Those, That's where the problem lies, not right in Black women. And so you have, um, in terms of this reading of Jezebel, you have, in the Black church and beyond, actually, um, it really takes a feminist or a womanist to break down the, a proper reading of Jezebel. But in most churches, you have this reading that she is an evil woman. She is an evil woman who um, used her sexuality or her sex to try and control a population and to turn another population against against their God towards sin, right? And she tried to control her death using her body. That's the reading. And the reading is that, you know, she puts on, you know, makeup and somehow the color red gets connected to her. And um, she tries to use her sexual powers to seduce her way out of trouble. And so this narrative is problematically uh, attached to Black women. And obviously it's attached during slavery, but it continues to be later on. Women of the night, women in the nightclubs, women the women who, the middle-class Black respectable women after slavery were trying not to be, right? They were trying not to be the women who frequented clubs, who loved to dance, who loved to sing, who loved to um, be sexual subjects, right? Who loved to live into their very natural um, and normal um, sexual subjectivity, which we all have. Um, The idea was to not be that because that is bad. And so that was seen as that was seen as evil. And so anytime um, in pop culture, when you see, I think, I can't remember what movie this was, but Beyonce is kind of like the, she's, she's in this movie and she's basically this Jezebelian figure. Her job is to seduce men and she wears the tight red dresses and the red flower in her hair and Um, all of that. And so you get this image that women are out here seducing, you know, just seducing men by just existing. That's connected to Jezebel. And when I was younger, my mom would always have this thing where she would say, you know, don't be no Jezebel. Ooh, that person has a Jezebel spirit. And what she was saying is that they were being a sexually Promiscuous and problematic ways, and of course Jezebel even problematized the langu- problematizes the language of promiscuity because that is even that's a, that's very gendered and attached to a cisgender a heterosexual women. It's not attached to his cisgender heterosexual men, and so even that people have a right to have sexual consented sexual liaisons, right? They have that right, and so basically the language of promiscuity takes that away, and so. Jezebel shows up in the black church in the text as someone who was sexually uh, promiscuous who deserved violence and so what I what I argue uh, in the book is uh, one that this is a, a misreading uh, of the Jezebelian figure what's interesting is that about Jezebel is that how first of all how she sexualized well if we read the text in a close reading of the text Jezebel, How does she become sexualized? She's even called a whore in Revelation. How do we even get there? Um, Will Gaffney, she uh, is a Hebrew Bible scholar and she does some work on Jezebel. And we were in deep conversation about the figure when I was writing. And um, one of the things that she argues is that this is the only person who is killed in such a demonic way and in four acts in the Bible. And she argues that she is sexualized not because of anything sexual that she does, because she doesn't do anything sexual, but because of her power. And so the only way to demonize her, the best way to demonize her was to demonize her sexually. And we know this, we see this in uh, the history of Black folks uh, in slavery, the the way to demonize and dehumanize the slaves was to do so sexually. And so she is demonized because of her power. Um, What Will Gaffney argues is that um, she, her husband, they do not perform uh, normative, patri- the patriarchal model, right? And so Jezebel, we need to be clear that Jezebel was not in relationship with Yahweh. She was not in relationship with our God. She was in relationship with her own God. So she is not beholden to Yahweh. So that's the first thing. The other thing is she's from another country, so she's seen as foreign. She's not one of them, right? So there's that. But then underneath it all is that her husband yields his power to her. They don't have this kind of um, heteropatriarchal uh, liaison that we're used to, uh, that we come to expect in a patriarchal society. And so he yields his power to her. And so Jezebel begins to not, well, yeah, to co-rule or rule um, even while he's alive. And and what Will Gaffney argues is that the biblical authors were so enraged by that. They had to find a way um, to show that this this must die, this person must die, but also this behavior, this idea that you could rule over a man must die. So a close reading of Jezebel shows that she is committed to her God and her husband. There's nothing sexual about her. I mean, if, if it was, it's fine because that's human, but there isn't in the Bible that she's not, she is committed to her husband and her gods, but yes, she gets sexualized. Um, and then one of the ways, one of the reasons also that I remember growing up that people hated her is like, well, she, you know, she came after Elijah and I'm like, well, no one mentions that Elijah killed 850 of her people. She didn't kill any of, she threatened, but he killed, you know, so it's just interesting the ways in which we allow violence in some ways, but not in others. Here she is threatening Elijah and he's afraid. But Elijah actually kills her people, and so the fact that she threatens him becomes, you know, this problem, and so she becomes this whore because, you know, here she is; she has this power to threaten Elijah enough that he runs off into the hills, um, and so the writers don't like that. Um, and then there's obviously, as I said before, this idea that she tried to kill her, or not kill, but seduce her, her killers, and that's simply. Not true. You know, another reading of that is that Jezebel was very powerful, and she stood firmly um, in her power. And stood, standing firmly in her power, she says, "Well, I, I'm, I'm going to die. I know I'm about to die, but I'm going to go out the way that I want to. I'm going to go out as a queen, the same way that I lived my life as a queen." Right. So you're going to and black women, we can relate to that. Right. We understand when violence is on its way. We say, okay, well, we're about to face violence. We understand we're about to face violence, but we're going to go out in the way that we want to. We're going to go out fighting. We're going to go out um, beautiful. We're going to go out like we know we're about to go out, but we're going to go out in this way. And so Jezebel, you know, upon her upon her death, you know, she's waiting and she gets dressed. She queens up, as we said. And she puts on her you know, earrings and reimagined makeup and all of that to be, to be beautiful in this moment. Not to seduce because actually those coming for her were eunuchs. So that would not have worked on them. So you have that. And they throw her to her death. And so the thing that Jezebel argues against, number one, is the sexualization of women and a, the distinction between sexualizing someone and them being a sexual subject. Right I have a right to live into my sexual subjectivity you don't have a right to to sexualize me however the latter is violent the former is you know it's power it's personal it's personal choice it's it's who i decide to be and there's a distinction there right but what the bible says it presents a case for is that when women are out of line and they don't live up to the patriarchal narrative and they have a voice, and they stand up for themselves, and they die the way they want to, they get to be murdered. And not just murdered, thrown thrown to their death, eaten by dogs, licked up. I mean, it is so vicious and violent, the death. And so one of the things that I argue is that, so this also creates this narrative for women who, in life, in real life, particularly Black women who, quote unquote, step out of line. It creates this idea that they were always asking for it. They're asking for the violence because that's how we—that's how the church has talked about Jezebel. Well, she was asking for it, so she deserved. Really? When do we? How and when? How do we get to that? Because she didn't participate in patriarchy. She deserved. She deserved death. She. What are we saying about domestic violence? What are we saying about rape against women and girls, and and men and boys? What are we saying about that? If we're also, saying that we're okay with this narrative, and so Jezebel really critiques the church's reading, and specifically the Black church's reading. A uh, Jezebel unhinged that critiques this reading of her, and and it engages how this very harmful reading of the biblical figure translates in our and uh, how we interact also in real life.
1: Um, there's a lot you put into conversation and. Uh... The, the kind of I guess center of the book um, mm-hmm. is a really wonderful chapter where you offer what you call a, a black feminist study of religion. Um, mm-hmm. And here you're putting you're putting womenist thought, which you um, you, you kind of mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. but you, you cover in more detail in the book, of course, um, and black feminist thought and then uh, cultural studies uh, scholarship, um, you put all this into really fruitful conversation, I think. And uh, this chapter, I hope people will you know start to use in like theories and methods of study religion courses and things like that. I think it would work really, really well. Um, so um, how how do these theoretical domains help us think uh, about religious, cultural texts in new ways? Um, and what are some of the alternative strategies for critical reading that you you think that uh, some of these these previous texts you cover in the book um, what what can they do for us?
0: Yeah, so I I think I should say that you know I began our conversation talking about how what, what gave me the intellectual spark and it was definitely Kelly Brown Douglas's book and. Um, mm-hmm. Womanist theology was kind of my entry point. Um, But what I uh, realized um, over time is that that discourse, though useful in a variety of ways, and absolutely necessary and critical, um, it did not go to the places that I wanted and needed to go for Jezebel and I think for other texts like Jezebel. And so I like to say that, you know, kind of get this kind of basic, because people always ask, so what's the distinction between the two? And I'm going to say I'm specifically talking because there are lots of kinds of womanists, but I'm talking specifically about womanists in religion. So womanist theologians and theoethicists. There are a lot of similarities and then there are differences. And then I'll move into your question. So in terms of similarities, I mean, like we Black feminists, and Black women as theologians center Black women. We are um, all concerned with Black liberation. Uh, we all critique structures of dominance. We're all concerned with power. We're all concerned with myths. We're all concerned and how those myths frame uh, Black women and girls um, and also kind of police us. We're all concerned with Black freedom, right? So those that's kind of like the basic. We're all concerned with these things, but then there are differences. And so the first uh, I guess, primary difference is that womanists place emphasis on the Black church, which is very important, which is why it's always important for me uh, as a religionist to stay in conversation with the womanist, even though I may go in different directions. So they place primary emphasis on the Black church. Does this mean, though, that Black feminists don't do religion or don't look at the Black church? No, that's, that's actually a false statement. Um, black feminists do do religion and they focus on the Black church, but I would say not in the kinds of ways that the theologians do women's theologians do um womanists uh argue that uh God is on the side of the oppressed right and so um God is there to fix things and I think for um, black feminists well first of all our work doesn't begin with question of questions of God so that's 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 a distinction we don't begin there um but the other thing is that the one of the things I argue in the text is that the idea that God is on the side of the oppressed, it kind of makes chaos. It puts chaos in this very neat box with a bow. And the works of black feminists, myself in particular, is is very messy. We live in the gray. Like there may be some things there aren't answers to. So that's why when I talk about even unhinging Jezebel, I say that or when I talk about patriarchy and, I, I very rarely will say that we're, you know, deconstructing, you know, patri No, we're, I don't know that we can deconstruct patriarchy because it's been here for so long and it's, it's so vast and it's so powerful. Right. But I do talk about lessening. I talk about unhinging. I talk about unlearning. I talk about um, decreasing. Right. So we could, we can do that. And that's very, very different in terms of womanists and black feminists, but a main difference are the methodological tools. Right. So, um, Womanists will use uh, theoethics or ethics by itself, right? Or um, theology. And so thus they begin with questions of God and questions of faith. Well, as a religionist, that's not. I am interested in that only in how it impacts culture or how culture impacts communities of Black women. But I'm not trying to um, teach uh, faith or make faith claims uh, or what have you, right? So that's different. So when I introduce... um, a black feminist study of religion, I'm really introducing um, alternative methodological tools, right? So, tools. So, I want to really look at the habits of language and representation. Well, those are tools of cultural studies. And so, um, I'm trained in the in black cultural studies in the Birmingham School with Stuart Hall, where we look at representation and we look at um, language and we look at discourse. And so, those are things that um, women as scholars aren't necessarily. Uh, concerned with not in the not in the ways that um, i am as a cultural theoretician and so um that's very important in terms of not saying I'm not saying I'm not introducing a black feminist study of religion and replace of it's in addition to this is another lens this is another uh way to get at uh, meanings right so because as, as I talk about in the book uh, this is I'm looking to get underneath meanings and how we come to know what we come to know, right? So it's epistemology. So it's just different methodologies. But in that, in looking at epistemines and looking at meaning and language, and thus I follow this word and this idea over centuries and doing that, I'm also trying to get at this very liberative space or what I hope would be a liberative space. And so what I argued is that I, I felt like we needed different tools to do that kind of work. And for people who want to do that kind of work, they will need um, different kinds of, of tools, you know, to do that. And I, I, there are, you know, um, other um, current students coming through now and they're using this kind of black feminist study of religion. But I, to me, it's very important to say it's not in place of, we absolutely need you know womanist theology it is um, in conversation with so it's another it's just a different kinds of tool and so a black feminist study of religion studies people signs symbols significations representations and meanings right so it's it's looking at the production of knowledge and it's it's raising a critical questions of the taken for granted um it's 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 asking how we got here how do we get to centering this kind of knowledge well those are those are very different kinds of questions. Those are not theological questions. I will say though, um, in my work after Jezebel, I do further develop. Um, I don't do not na- do i name it in this in the book, but I don't uh fully I don't focus on it. I further develop uh, a black feminist theology. And that is a theological discourse. Um but it also plays in the gray. And that's very big for me. Um that's that's what black feminists do. We play we we don't have the We understand we live in a world that is so complex that we don't get to put things in a nice box and put a bow on it and say, well, you know, God fixed it. That's not really our reality. You know, one of the things to think about that in a different way, I think about the conversation between James Cone and William R. Jones, and you have James Cone introducing Black theology, and he puts it kind of in a neat bowl. Like, we are the oppressed, God has chosen us, and God's going to fix it. That's a very simplistic way of thinking about James Cone. that's kind of the initial argument. And William R. Jones says, well, wait a minute. What, what do we say about a God that hasn't fixed it, though? What do we say about the power of that God? Is that God not as powerful or is that suffering actually divine suffering? And so I would say that as a Black feminist religion religionist, I kind of live in that space of raising those questions of, and, and saying things aren't, this can't be neat, neatly packaged. We may not have an answer for this, but we can kind of struggle through and raise uh, these questions and that's what a black feminist uh, study of religion does but also uh, it's also what a black feminist theology does but a black feminist theology does engage theological questions but probably more so in a in a well in a, in a, in a in a more complex way where we're okay with living in the gray there may not be an answer in the messy because and, and Graham messi is very important. Those are theoretical tools also that I use in the book. Those are very important because the Graham messi actually name real life. They 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 name the ways in which we also play in oppressive politics. Right? It's not always about you know the white man's foot on the black neck, black person's neck. Right? It's also about all the ways in which we all have feet on necks. So like white and, white supremacy is the problem, but so is you know, trans antagonism within Black communities. So is blacks, uh, Black aspirational patriarchy. So is, you know, um, pa- how patriarchal politics show up in LGBTQI community communities. They're, they're, it, life is much more um, complex. And so uh, Black feminists, a Black feminist study of religion and a Black feminist theology try to uh play and that space. And I use, and I use play very intentionally. there.
1: Yeah. Um, now you, you put all this together. Um, I mean, throughout the book, but uh, towards the end of the book, there's, there's kind of really two really interesting case studies, I guess we could call them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first one is on um, Bishop T.D. Jakes yes. and his representation of black women in his own theological discourse. And, um, can, can you walk us through this, uh, what, what, what you're trying to do, uh, with this kind of analysis, um, first tell us who Jakes is, um, where does he articulate, um, his, uh, I think you call it a, a, a Jezebelian ho theology, um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and what do we, what do we learn from this?
0: Yeah. So T.D. Jakes is a prominent, uh, black, um, pastor, Businessman, etc., etc., filmmaker, (laughs) book writer, singer. I mean, he's he's done it all, right, in terms of media. Um, But he begins (laughs) as this pastor, and he um, begins with a Bible study where he uh, had a pretty troubled upbringing, and based upon that upbringing and some of the struggles he saw his mother go through, uh, go through. Um, he creates this Bible study for black women um, that he that he hopes will liberate them. And so it's this is where the um, woman. loose, the book, the series sermon series, the film, all of these products, cultural products come out of what was initially a Sunday school lesson. And so he begins as just using the Sunday school lesson and he realizes he has something. You know, women are being spoken to in ways that, in the Black church, in ways that they never have. And they're responding to this. This is important. He's speaking to a particular need. And so from that, he gets an opportunity and the rest is history, on the public stage and the rest is history. I mean, he becomes this phenomenon. We don't get um, kind of, I mean, there were mega churches before Jake's, but- I think he takes everything to a whole other level. We don't get the kind of 20th 21st century preacher slash slash entertainer slash media mogul slash etc cetera, etc cetera, without T.D. Jakes. And so he becomes that. And he is this prominent figure. Um I don't I want to say in the black church but then not because Though his upbringing is in the Black church and um, he's deeply rooted there, his theology is there, uh, what he tried to build was a multicultural kind of center, a multinational, international kind of center of believers who come. And um, he has the Potter's House, a church and. Texas, and I I don't know what how many members he has anymore, but I think when I was writing the book, he must have had like 27,000. But that's really nothing in comparison to those who come to who purchase his books, which were which many of which have been at New York Times bestsellers, who watch his films, or who come to his conferences. You're talking about millions of people. So, this is a person who has influenced black church culture, black church preaching, and Black popular culture. And so out of T.D. Jakes, you get Tyler Perry. I mean, we don't get a Tyler Perry without T.D. Jakes. And so they're very much related. Actually, the first big stage play um, that Tyler Perry did, the biggest one, I believe it was the first, was T.D. Jakes's, or it was, they partnered somehow at one of his uh, Women's Art Loose Conferences. And so you see the th- theology in both between Tyler Perry and, um, TD Jakes, but ultimately, in Woman Thou Art Loose, whatever it began as, <laughs> it's something else today. So I think it began as something very noble in this desire to help women and the church um, make it through the harmful situations that they had experienced. So, Woman Thou Art Loosed from that, whatever that may be, from poverty, from from disability, from from joblessness, from sexual violence, from physical violence. And uh, T.D. Jakes focused a lot on the kind of sexual violence piece. Um, And what I found in the original works was that he focused on that, but never focused kind of on the perpetrators. Like he never critiqued those who were doing the violence. So that was kind of a red flag for me. But it makes sense later on in his works because the violence that happened to these women are no longer front and center it the message shifts from oh my goodness what happened to you is bad but you can still go on and live your life um i'm i want to affirm you it moves from that which is what it was kind of originally to you're a problem you need to be loosed from womanhood and so a close reading of i think i read like i don't know maybe between 13 to 17 of his books and watched all of his films. Um, on the surface, if you watch, if you listen to him or watch his uh, films or read his books on the surface, you're like, oh my goodness, amazing. He's helping these women. But if you listen closely, you see the, this pattern in his works where you're like, oh my gosh, he's making the women the problem. Like They are ultimately the reason for what's happened to them and where they are in life. But if you don't listen closely, you'll miss that. And so I wanted to pull that out. In the book, how this theology was extremely harmful. It is mass mediated and we see other pastors replicating it. And we now see it showing up in Tala Perry's film. This idea that women are, the Black women particularly, are the problem. And you're the reason why things are going bad in your life. You need to fix yourself. And so Jakes um, preaches that. But what I find fascinating about T.D. Jakes is that he didn't grow to be this phenomenon because he's a bad person. Um, in his preaching, he comes across as extremely sincere and it is very easy to be drawn in. And so I, I I see it as this kind of struggle within between him and maybe capitalism. I'm not sure. Like maybe a struggle between his call to do this maybe what was initially noble work and the work that capitalism calls on us to do. I see the struggle there, and so I see these. You know, I see him going through the struggle in his works and in his sermons where he starts off noble. There's something very noble there, but throughout you get into this very negative um, Jezebelian discourse where he's problematic, problemizing um, women in a way that um, puts them in a, con- a Jezebelian context. And we argue that he constructs this, basically this kind of whole theology. And so in his works, you see him talking about rape within the context of promiscuity. You see him talking about violence against women within this context, again, of promiscuity. Promiscuity is really prevalent um, throughout his work. Um, works. He talks about um, this lack of virtue that women have. And so it's very similar to this reading. He's not the master class of slavery, but his reading of black women and girls is very similar to their reading of black women and girls. Um, And so I was watching some of his films and I was like, well, maybe it's for all women. And there was one film, I talk about it in the book and I can't remember uh, the name of it, Heaven Something, but it has white people in it and that's different for him. And so uh, as, as their primary characters also. And it hit me that he may possibly know what he's doing. And in, 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 in a very wrong way, like it's, it may be intentional that he is framing black women in this way, because there is a woman who's married. Uh, I think it's heaven help us or something like that. She's she's uh, a white woman. She's married to a white man. And I can't remember what's happening between the two of them. But T.D. Jakes writes her character in a way where she's allowed to be a sexual subject without being framed in any way possible in promiscuity. Like, all of the other characters, you know, in his film, the Black women are framed in this promiscuity that they, you know, are trying to release themselves from. And this is why they get raped. This is connected to, you know, these bad experiences that they have. And it's particularly prevalent in um, his first film, named after the book, uh, Woman That Art Loosed. And so... It's very prevalent. That that promiscuity uh, narrative is very prevalent there. But here you have this white woman who gets to be a sexual subject. She's very sexual. And that's not made a problem. So that communicated to me that, okay, Jake's knows what he's doing. He knows that he is painting Black women and girls in this way. It's not that he's ignorant and doesn't realize it because the cultural tropes are so strong. Yes, that may be true, but also he also knows enough to not do it to this white woman. So what's happening there? So yeah, so Jake's is this very a prominent figure in the black church world um, by virtue of the work that he's done. That uh, I'm not saying he's prominent because everyone agrees with him or um, everyone wants to be like him. It's he's prominent because of what he's done and the platforms that he's created for himself um, and others, and so and, and the membership that he has, the audience that he has. Um, it's very large. I mean, he's partnered with Oprah. I think she gave him a show on OWN. I mean, he's he's on that level. <laughs> he's on the Oprah Winfrey level, and so he mass mediates these these messages. And what I wanted to do. So a lot of times people look at Jezebel in the beginning as two different books, and my editor thought so too. They wanted me to write two books instead of one, and I said nope. I'm doing one book, um, because the first half of the book is very densely theoretical. The second half of the book is reading culture. And I wanted them together because I wanted to outline uh, the work that needed to happen, kind of the, the strategies and language and discourse that I say in the beginning that I wish parents had or wish my parents had. I wanted to do all of that structural and historical work, but then I wanted to show how to do it. And if the book's if there was two separate books i don't know that people would have made that connection. So the second half looks at TD Jakes and Tyler Perry because it says, "Okay, now I've, i i want to show you how to do the kind of reading that i've been talking about. This is what i I've, I've used the first half to, you know, lay out the rules kind of of reading, reading differently in religion. Well, now i'm going to show you how to do that work." And that's what that's what the last two chapters do on uh, Tyler Perry and P. D Jakes. it shows how to read. It does the work that I laid out.
1: Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad they trusted you because I think it does work really well. And I think that if it was just the first part, it would be a much more difficult or inaccessible book for yes. many. And uh, oh yes, absolutely. So, yes. So how? Yeah, the how second
0: half basically Tyler Perry fit into
1: this. Tyler, yeah. Well, so Tyler how-
0: Perry is.
1: How do you how do you read him? What types of assertions is he making about black womanhood? Um, What are the what are the social consequences of the circulation of these images?
0: Yeah, so Tyler Perry, I kind of read him as T.D. Jakes's understudy. I mean, initially uh, Tyler Perry has probably eclipsed T.D. Jakes at this point, but initially he's kind of T.D. Jakes's understudy and he gets these theologies um, that are very prevalent this is like the late nineties that this, uh, nineties, mid nineties, that this is, this is kind of happening. Tyler Perry comes on the scene and T.D. Jakes is just blowing up and, um, you know, he's mass mediating this message. And I think Tyler Perry takes that message and he, uh, about, you know, black women, this kind of whole theology we talked about them being promiscuous, like inherently, um, promiscuous and, and connecting this to a kind of a Christian theology and this and the Jezebelian theology and this desire to regulate and censure Black women and girls' identities, uh, desires, and experiences. And ultimately, that's what the work does. The work, when you create films like this, when you create cultural products like this, you, in essence, problematize Black women's very natural desires, urgence, uh, urges, and um, ways of beings and, and experiences, good and bad, you problematize those and you don't offer any type of critical discourse. You don't you don't see them as um, human. And so Tyler Perry fits into this by creating a whole canon of texts that really um you know influences the cultural message about black women and girls. And so one of the things that I argue in the book is. Why is it that we're not, there should be some sort of distinction between the messaging of the Black church and popular culture, but they are evidence that there isn't, that there is this marriage between the two and this, this, uh, this discourse that's being created. And it is really no different from the white supremacist discourse that we're hearing about Black women and girls. And so Tyler Perry, uh, I write a chapter on Tyler Perry, but I have a whole book before Jezebel on Tyler Perry. It's an edited volume. Um, it's womanist, feminist critiques or discourses, something like that, um, on Tyler Perry films, and so we look at. I think we really look at the. I think we look at films and stage plays, and so we offer this critical lens. And in that book, I have a chapter where I say that he creates, uh, recreates again and again and again this uh, kind of this trope of the black bitch. Well, in Jezebel, I talk about the other trope, and that is this the black whore. So he creates those two and he uses them in every single film. And sometimes they're, you know, merged together. And so this is harmful and that Black women and girls are then seen this way. You know, I think other nationalities, races of people, they can maybe have tropes and they're in a film or in culture and advertising and it doesn't impact them. But for black women, these cultural tropes very much impact how we are read in person and how we're treated in person. That was kind of why I started off with this story about the Jezebel Sluts. I mean, this is and, and how the, the prominent member of my church, how he saw me. Well, this 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 was those ideas were learned in culture, and they're reaffirmed in culture. So here, Tyler Perry is, he is reaffirming these very harmful narratives that are learned in culture that were first given to us by white supremacy, right? That we don't need those. They're not helpful. And so he reaffirms those very um, negative images of black women and girls. The flip side of this though, is that oftentimes when we critique the sexualization of black women and girls, we argue to the far left and the far left what is respectability. And so a far right. And that's respectability. And so it's like, let's erase sexual sexuality altogether. And what I argue in my work, I, I kind of introduce it in Jezebel, but then I really get into it um, in my a couple of articles after Jezebel, is that no, the goal is not though, it's not then to erase Black women's sexuality. That's not That's not the answer to getting uh, lessening this narrative, this false narrative of uh, so-called promiscuity, innate, inherent uh, promiscuity. That's not the answer. That's what the Uh, respectability politics of middle-class Black folks, you know, after slavery, that's what they tried to do. They said, well, we'll just erase sexuality. Black women will hide their sexuality. And thus, when you see old pictures of Black women, um, and then being respectful, it's respectable, the college students, the sororities, you know, they're kind of dressed neck to their, this kind of uh, Victorian-like ideal. And so What I argue is that, no, that's the erasure of sexuality isn't the answer either, right? It's No, we don't want uh, racists co-opting our sexuality. We don't want Black folks co-opting our sexuality or demonizing it. Um, But it is ours to have. So we're not saying that we need to erase it. Um, We we have to find a way of just like everyone else gets to be a sexual being. We have to find a way to create space um, or take space, take up space as sexual beings who Do not want to be sexualized, however, and so Tyler Perry, you know, I argue that he does the opposite. Right? He, he he recreates the tropes, and we're fighting against the tropes because the tropes impact our very lives. They impact how we're seen when we're walked down the street. They impact how we're seen when we get raped. They impact how we seen how we're seen when we um, are victims. You know, uh, one of the one of the critiques of the Me Too movement um was that we're hearing from all these white women we can see them as victims particularly in hollywood but as soon as a black woman says something that the conversation is shut down it's unbelievable well this is where that comes from so it impacts us in very very real ways it's not just um film um or entertainment it's something that impacts our very lives
1: well tomorrow it's a it's a really fantastic book um often hard to read um but certainly a, a necessary piece, and I thank you for for writing it. Um, before I let you go, can you 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 kind of hinted at some of the stuff you're working on now? Can you give us a little glimpse of what what projects you might be have cooking?
0: Sure. So um, right after, actually, I think a month, maybe the same month that Jezebel was published, um, I also published a a special issue because I didn't feel like Jezebel. Uh, I really wanted to get this historical work done. And I really wanted to get this kind of critical readings done. Right. I wanted to get that done. And I knew that Jezebel was also a very dense book, first of all, to read, but difficult to read. Um, so the message is difficult to hear, but it's also difficult to read because it's highly theoretical. So I understand the first half anyways. And so I got that. But there were places I wanted to go that there was literally no space to go. Jezebel, before somehow, some amazing way, Duke was able to compact uh, what was, I think, initially 320 words or 340 words into 100 and, I mean, not words, pages into 200 something pages. That was amazing to me. Because the book was initially like 340 pages. Well, we don't need a 400 page book out here. So <laughs> I um, decided that alongside of Jezebel should be these other works and they should be read as if they are um, a collection and not separate projects. So the first work um, that I released was a special issue called Black Bodies in Ecstasy, Black Women, the Black Church in the Politics of Pleasure. And that is with the journal Black Theology, and um, it has some amazing writers in it: um, Brittany Cooper, Carrie Day. They, I mean, like just kind of the voices of Black feminism and womanism of the twenty-first century Black Black women voices. And so, um, there are authors who write write about basically pleasure, because Jezebel again gives the history. Jezebel and Hinge gives the historical uh, analysis and it offers this critique and it gives this critique of of cultural readings, but it doesn't get, it, it says we need to make room for Black women's sexuality and our pleasure, but it doesn't talk about what that looks like. And so the special issue does that work. It's Black bodies in ecstasy, Black women, the Black church, and the politics of pleasure. So that was the first thing. And that should be read kind of hand in hand with Jezebel, maybe right after Jezebel. And then so that's out. That's done. But the book that I'm working on now is really my heart's work. And that work that book is called Parenting Against the Patriarchy, Raising Non-Toxic Sons in White Supremacist America, and how this race relates to Jezebel, is that I really um in several spaces, but particularly in the opening, I talk I have this whole like paragraph, maybe it's two that says it matters, and I talk about it matters um, what happened on the plantation between black women, and, black women and girls, and black men and boys. It matters. It matters how those politics have created this distancing and tensions between us in ways that we haven't figure out, figured out how to fix. And so that whole statement there about it matters and how this has impacted us right? Because Jezebel, again, yes, it's about the biblical figure and the cultural figure. It's also about the cultural reading first and foremost, where it comes from, which is white supremacy. But then I move into the black church, right? So in black people and specifically black men. And so I'm really talking about relationships. After getting past white supremacy and all that, I'm talking about relationships in black communities and while we're reiterating this narrative. And so my current book kind of takes that idea about it matters and those relationships and it talks about what it means, what it has meant for me to try to raise sons that are non-toxic in this white supremacist world. How are they dealing with um, those stereotypes? How are they dealing with policing? How are they dealing with the sexualization of Black women and girls? How are they dealing with their own sexualization? What? How do I complexify that, right? Because Jezebel looks at um, the representations of Black women and girls' bodies, but what about the representations and rapes? Of black men and boys and so it's kind of like part three of you know this kind of trilogy like text and so that's i call that my heart works heart work because jezebel is highly theoretical um i would say that parenting against the patriarchy is two but it is in conversation with real life experience so it's whereas you don't get that in jezebel You get history, you get a little bit of experience, but you get mostly history and theory. Um, I would say it flips a bit in my latest book where um, I'm really centering experience, but I'm reading experience through history and theory also.
1: Well, it sounds like really important work. um, And thank you for for going through it. It sounds like challenging, difficult work as well. So good luck. Yeah,
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
1: Yeah. And thanks for making the time to talk about this wonderful book. Appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed talking to you.